everyone. Hello. Still morning? Okay, today's reading comes from 2 Samuel chapter 13, verses 1 to 22. Some time passed. David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar, and David's son Amnon fell in love with her. Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of David's brother Shemiah, and Jonadab was a very crafty man. He said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill, And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me something to eat, and prepare the food in my sight, so that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight, so that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, where he was lying down. She took dough, kneaded it, made cakes in his sight, and baked the cakes. Then she took the pan and set them out before him, but he refused to eat. Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber so that I may eat from your hand. So Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not force me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do anything so vile. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be one of the scoundrels in Israel. Now, therefore, I beg you, speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. Then Amnon was seized with a very great loathing for her. Indeed, his loathing was even greater than the lust he had felt for her. Amnon said to her, Get out. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this is wrong. This wrong in sending me away is greater than the other you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for this is how the virgin daughters of the king were clothed in earlier times. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. But Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she was wearing. She put her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar remained a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he became very angry but he would not punish his son Amnon because he loved him, for he was his firstborn. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had raped his sister Tamar.
easy. <laughs> so along with last week's account of Hagar, the slave of Sarah forced into surrogacy and eventually driven from her home, today's narrative belongs with several accounts in scripture that are termed texts of terror by biblical scholar Phyllis Tribble. And according to Tribble, these texts sit in uneasy tension with our faith, exposing, as they do, the inherent patriarchy of the biblical culture and the violence against women that so often arises in this uneven distribution of power. So while there's no happy ending to many of these texts of terror, they call us to both repentance and action. We need to hold them up as an indictment of the societal structures that have produced such destructive events. And this is a good place to begin, I think, when it comes to the rape of Tamar. A fairly straightforward explanation can be given for the presence of this story and numerous other accounts of rape in the Bible, I think, uh, if we remember that not everything in the Bible is prescriptive. So it's a theme that keeps coming up. The scriptures depict a range of human experiences and therefore at times they're merely just describing an ethical reality rather than prescribing an ethical norm. Rape is a lamentable aspect of human relations gone wrong and it's not surprising therefore that it appears in the life of Israel and therefore in our scriptures. So what makes this a tough text, therefore, isn't necessarily the fact that it describes a rape or incest, although both of these things do make it difficult reading for us, but how this event is often interpreted and understood and the way that it fits into the bigger picture. So it's not just what the text says here, but how, that it's, how it's presented to us that makes it a tough text. So if we look at the story, it has what we might term an omniscient narrator. So you might remember this from high school English classes. Essentially, it's a narrator that has a God's eye view of the events, of the scene, and we tend to interpret what they say as fair and objective because that's the view that they're taking. It's the lens they're, they're presenting events through. And often we actually even see them as presenting God's own perspective of the story. So when we read this text, we naturally come to the conclusion that Tamar is blameless, that she's an innocent victim, and that Amnon behaves atrociously because that's how the text is presented to us. That's how we hear the events. But how else might the narrator be guiding our interpretation of this story? The very beginning of the chapter contains a hint about how we are to understand it. Some time passed. That's a clue immediately that gives us an interpretive key. Since what? Time has passed since what? The context is important here because the preceding two chapters are the story of David's infidelity with Bathsheba uh, and his arrangement to have her husband killed. So that's the broader context that we find this story in. And as a result, God curses David, saying, I will raise up trouble against you from within your own house. That's the message that the prophet Nathan gives to David. So is what happens to Tamar, David's daughter, at the hand of Amnon, David's son, not to mention the later death of Amnon at the hands of Absalom, who's another son of David, in vengeance for raping Tamar, is all of this to be understood as one of the consequences of David's sin? 
is her disgrace in the eyes of society and outworking of that trouble that God is promising to stir up within David's family. And Tamar's not the only innocent victim, not the only innocent to suffer as a consequence of strife within David's family either. The first casualty is the child that's born of David and Bathsheba's adulterous liaison, uh, whose death in infancy is also forewarned in that curse that Nathan conveys to David. Uh, when David's son Absalom sought to overthrow David as king later on, so these events come further on in the story, he publicly had sex with David's concubines. And this was a direct challenge to David's power, but in other aspects it also fulfills part of that curse. And clearly consent wasn't the issue in biblical times that it is today, but in contemporary terms we would see those concubines as the victims of rape as well. So it's not a very palatable thought, is it? The idea of Tamar and of other innocents paying the price for David's moral failure really rankles with us. And we also have to consider Amnon and Absalom, both of whom are decidedly not innocent, but yet whose actions are sometimes understood to be part of the consequences of David's sin. Are they therefore not really accountable for their sin if their actions are a result of God stirring up trouble within David's house? So we've already talked about the role of the omniscient narrator in presenting Tamar as blameless and Amnon as the one at fault, and perhaps also at the same time setting us up to side with Absalom later when there's this rivalry between the brothers for the throne. But actually the narrator quickly moves on from Tamar after this episode and we don't hear of her again because the focus shifts on to the succession of the throne and who will replace David as king. So does this make God complicit with what happens to Tamar, turning her into a mere pawn in the overwhelmingly male royal plot? To answer this, I think we need to consider a second aspect of Hebrew narrative. So last week when we were looking at the story of Hagar, uh, an account in which God addressed both Hagar and Abraham <coughs> directly, the toughness of that text in part stemmed from the fact that it was God who told Hagar to return to her abusive context. Sorry, God is very much an actor in, in that story and that was where we located the toughness of that text. But here in the story of Tamar, God is conspicuous by an absence from the text, at least in this particular episode of the royal family's history. God's absence as a character, and there's also no divinely appointed representative speaking on God's behalf in this text either. So that absence is what we might call a narrative gap. And rather than suggest complicity, we might understand this absence instead as a condemnation. God is withdrawing from the political struggles of the two brothers. And we've seen as well that David is far from blameless in this story. He's neglecting to intervene on Tamar's behalf or to rebuke Amnon. And at times in scripture, we see that God judges by leaving people and nations to their own devices. So Psalm 81, for example, speaks of God giving the people of Israel over to their own stubborn hearts when they refuse to listen to God's voice. So perhaps Tamar's suffering is not intended as part of God's promised punishment for David, uh, 
but results only from the free choice or failure to act of some of the other agents in this story. So this is a tough text because it recounts a reprehensible act, more than one, but we have great difficulty when it comes to assigning responsibility. In another time, we might have been satisfied with understanding Tamar's situation as one that brings shame to David uh, and a consequence of his own flawed behaviour, which has become a pattern at this point in the story. But this is just not going to cut it as a reading for us today. So there's a couple things I think we can keep in mind. Firstly, it's possible for people to act of their own choice, even when they seem to be conforming to some preordained prophecy. And this is paradoxical for us, but it's a tension that reoccurs throughout scripture. So take Joseph's brothers, for example. Uh, They're motivated by jealousy. They choose to sell their brother into slavery. But then at the end of Genesis, Joseph tells them that God was using their evil intentions as part of a greater plan to save many in a time of famine. And secondly, sin is not restricted to the actions that we freely choose. It's a universal human condition. And some of the greatest destruction in society and in human relationships actually seems to arise from behaviours that aren't freely chosen. So I I can think of addictions as just one example of that. So might the curse of David not also be understood as a prediction of the expected consequences of his own moral failings? And there are certainly parallels between David's behaviour and Amnon's that are difficult to ignore. And David's choice not to intervene in this particular story is something that exacerbates the brothers' rivalry and kind of drives the story going forward. So how does Tamar fit with all of this? If you'll let me be slightly frivolous for a moment, I wonder if anyone has heard of what's called a manic pixie dream girl. Not where you thought it was going. (laughs) It's a movie trope, and it was first described by film critic Nathan Rabin. And the manic pixie dream girl, quote, exists solely in the fevered imaginations of sensitive writer-directors to teach broodingly soulful young men to embrace life and its infinite mysteries and adventures, end quote. So you can probably think of an example, uh, the character Penny in the early seasons of the Big Bang Theory before they decided they needed to really give her her own storyline. Lots of roles played by Kirsten Dunst. There's lots of examples out there. But the Manic Pixie Dream Girl is often adorably quirky or whimsical. She's low maintenance. Uh, But what defines her as a character trait is the fact that she has absolutely no inner life and no story of her own. And her whole purpose is to assist the male protagonist in his journey towards growth and self-discovery and fulfilment. So it's a well-worn cliché. So the Manic Pixie Dream Girl is a contemporary stereotype, but the tendency for women's stories to be subsumed into more dominant male narratives is not. Tamar is raped by one brother, silenced by another, and left unprotected by her father. And whether we understand her story as part of Amnon and Absalom's competition for the throne, or the outworkings of David's sin and the resultant curse, 
she remains an incidental character in the larger stories of her male relatives. So let's take care in our interpretation that we don't also make her the victim a third time over by paying attention only to the narratives of Absalom and uh, Amnon and David here. So while her tragedy might take place in this overarching narrative, she deserves to be acknowledged as more than just a plot device, and that's what we can do. So let's do that now by taking the time to listen to Tamar and what she might have to say to us. And what Tamar offers is a voice of protest. In fact, this differs from other accounts of rape in the Bible in that we do hear from Tamar. That often doesn't happen. Her argument's so well articulated, actually, that we cannot help but fault Amnon all the more. It goes something like this. She says, no, this is wrong because you're my brother. This is not what we do in Israel. Think of the humiliation and what it might mean for me. And then think of how people will judge you. And then finally, if you won't change your mind, at least speak to the king. So she's actually appealing to their, their common father here. Uh, so we can be married before you do this. And it would make little sense as an argument against rape in contemporary circumstances. I'm not suggesting for a moment that rape victims typically have an opportunity to reason with their attackers at all. So that's, that's not what we draw from this. But it does testify to Tamer's courage and her attempt to exercise what little agency she has. And even after she's been raped, knowing full well how she would be perceived in society, Tamar refuses to behave like one who has been shamed. She tears her robes, which are those worn only by virginal princesses, and that might seem like an acknowledgement of her shame, but the fact that she does it so publicly, I think, is actually another act of protest. So this is a tough text, but it's not one that we should avoid. These are stories that need to be told, and Tamar represents countless victims who have been shamed and silenced when they ought to have been defended. We might follow her example of protest by retrieving her story from the background of her father and her brother's stories and giving it the attention that she deserves, that it deserves in its own right. And the absence of God in the narrative suggests that it's an entirely appropriate response for us to be outraged on Tamar's behalf and to be the spokesperson that's lacking in the account as her own voice is silenced. So it's up to us, the people of God, to speak out and to make sure that these violent acts are questioned as much when we read them in our scriptures as when we see them in the world today. So let's think through a response in prayer. God, we live in a world where people abuse their power in ways you never intended. People suffer both directly and indirectly as a result of human sin. It affects everyone. But some are more vulnerable than others, and we ask that you direct our attention to them that you will prompt us to act for their protection and empowerment. We thank you for Tamar's story. Help us to hear it and not to ignore it. Too many victims of rape and other abuses are still shamed and silenced. Help us to hear their protests 
and to amplify them as we work for the justice of your kingdom. Amen.